0: The book of John, as you know, is called a canonical gospel, not a synoptic gospel like Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called because John's gospel seems to break with the rhythm and the order of the events of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was written undoubtedly much later. The early church called the gospel of John, pictured it in stained glass or in the art um, as, a, as early as 500 A.D. as an eagle, because an eagle is the only bird that can fly directly into the sun and look. The Gospel of John is a beautiful picture of how um, uh, the Lord teaches us that there's only one way to be saved, and that is that is through faith, not, not works. And he does this in this amazing way that stretches our mind so that you can see it's as simple that a child can understand it, but it is deep, deep, deep. Some have said that it's a text in which a a child can uh, wade and an elephant can swim, both in the book of John. So if you're able, would you stand with me and I'll read from John chapter 2 beginning at verse 12. And I'm going to read all the way down through verse 25, not just page, uh, uh, verse 22, which I think is in your bulletin. John chapter 2 beginning at verse 12. After this, And he took those who sold the pigeons, and he said to them, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed in the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The grass withers, the flowers fade, God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. This passage teaches us the extent to which Jesus will go to clear out anything that's in his way in order for him to get your attention and for him to draw himself to you And when you read the book of John, you fly through the book of John oftentimes from the wedding of Cana to the cleansing of the temple, and we rarely notice any connections. But it's interesting that John is the only gospel writer who puts these two events together, and I think there's good reason for him to do that. If you think about how in your own life, sometimes Jesus gives you amazing blessing, fills your cup, and sometimes he takes things away. He turns over your tables, right? Sometimes He fills you to the brim with wine, and sometimes He turns your life over in a way that you do not understand why. And here in this text, Jesus goes to show us that there's a connection between the ways that He sometimes fills us up and the way that sometimes He turns things upside down for us. Why? Because He's always driving us again and again and again to Himself, to the gospel, and He will do anything it takes for Him to draw you to Himself and to remind you that He alone is the only way that you could be reconciled to the Father. And there are hundreds of ways that we choose throughout the course of our life to pursue it in other ways, but He will do anything it takes to focus your affection and your attention on him, even if it means he turned your life upside down. Think about Job, for example, just to illustrate. You know, when, when Job had all, things, all these things happen to him, did God tell Job why? Well, no. He, we know why as readers because we can read the entire book of Job, but Job didn't know why. And so it wasn't until God said, oh, Job, Does the lightning consult you on where to strike like it does me? Surely it does. Does Pleiades ask you for where to go in the sky like it does me? Surely, surely you know. And God in Job is showing us the same thing Jesus is showing us at the temple, that he sometimes overturns your tables before he tells you why he does it. And it's in that tension. Sometimes your lives are full to the brim with joy. And sometimes your life is turned upside down, that Jesus is helping you understand how beautiful and magnificent and important He is to your life. Whatever obstacles are in your way, He will overcome them to win your affections back to Him. Do you hear Him? And so in John chapter 2, there's really two very simple points. Who needs the cleansing, the cleansing of the temple, and how do we get this cleansing? Sometimes he fills us up. Sometimes he turns our life upside down. Who needs the cleansing? And how do we get it? First, who needs the cleansing? Now, in this story, it says that Jesus went up from Capernaum with his brothers and sisters to the Passover. Jesus was walking from Galilee to Jerusalem. That's like walking from here to Oklahoma City. How many days would it take you to walk to Oklahoma City? probably five or six. And here Jesus has been on the road for five or six days, walking uphill. We know the Jericho Road, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. There was an incline of 4,000 feet when you got halfway between Jericho and you got to Jerusalem. And so they come to Jerusalem, right? The capital of Israel to celebrate Passover. And at the temple, Jesus walks into the temple and he sees that it's, it's, it's full of merchants. And Merchants back then would have been like um, fireworks sales at the 4th of July around here Like if you're going to go to Passover People from all over the world came to Jerusalem To celebrate Passover And you would have found that there were merchants Lined up along the highways and the byways And if you were a merchant insider Then maybe you can get into the court of Gentiles Like where many of them had set up shop Right there in the middle of the temple There were merchants everywhere and Jesus walks into the temple and he sees this. And what's the temple? The temple was the center of the heartbeat of Judaism. It was where they celebrated. It was where they worshipped. It was where they, they offered sacrifices. It's where they mourned together. It's where they heard the blessing of God together. It was, the temple wasn't a place for Israel. It was a way of life for them. And so here Jesus walks into it and he you think about the way the the uh, the, the, world, the temple had had in the past where Solomon dedicates it and he says, Oh Lord, there's no God like you in heaven or on earth or beneath the earth. The highest heavens can't contain you, much less this house that I have built. And yet you say that my name will be there. And everyone who passes by this temple will say, Great is the Lord. But if you don't walk in my ways, he says in 1 Kings chapter 9, the nations walk by the temple, and they will sneer, and they will hiss, and you will become a laughingstock. And that's what happened. In 586 B.C., Babylon, Babylon came in, and they destroyed the temple. And they took Israel off, made them captive. And then in Ezra chapter 3, they rebuilt Zerubbabel's temple. And remember, they, they are, they're there, and they're opening themselves back up, saying, oh, this, maybe this is the temple that we're waiting for. Is this it? And then later, of course, um, they dedicated the temple again in 165 between Malachi and Matthew. They, the dedication, Hanukkah, right, and Aramaic. Jews still celebrate it today. And they dedicated the temple. It was the center of life for the people of God. And now they're on their third temple. They're building on top of Zerubbabel's temple, Herod's temple, which was built beginning in 20 B.C. It took them 84 years to build this temple. Please, Lord, let it not take that long for us. 84 years of building this temple. And it was the center of the way of life for them. And Jesus walks into them, and he says, all right, is the cycle going to repeat? Temple was built, temple was destroyed. Temple was built, temple was destroyed. We turned away, we turned away. Is the cycle going to continue to repeat? That's a question for the modern church, isn't it? And Jesus walks in at Passover, the time of celebrating. It's it's a time of liberation, a time of freedom. It's a time where the whole nation of Israel, everybody who believed the covenant promises of God, all those who were circumcised in their families came together to celebrate his faithfulness to them. And it would have been like walking into the Super Bowl arena. It was like game day. That's the scene. Months before Passover, they would have whitewashed all the sepulchers. They would have repaired all the bridges. They would have made sure everything was just right for Jerusalem at that time. And that people had to come. And they had to pay the the temple tribute tax. Everybody except uh, the women and the children paid the temple tribute tax. And there would have been money changers there. And because the money in the ancient Near East, Roman denarii and other money, had Caesar's image on them, it was not accepted in the temple. So they had to exchange it for Tyrrhenian money so they could use it to then buy the animal and then offer the animal for sacrifice. And here's Jesus. And he walks into the temple. And he is lights out mad. Why is he mad? Well, he's mad, first of all, because the court of Gentiles was the only place where the foreigners were able to come into the temple. They were able to come into the temple, and they were able to get a glimpse of what it's like to be part of the people of God. And inside the court of the uh, Gentiles, there was a barricade, and it said they found these barricades, and they have read the inscriptions, and it says that no foreigner is to enter within the forecourt around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught Will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. And so in the only place around the temple, court of Gentiles, inside the court of Gentiles, was the court of women, and the court of Israel, and the court of priests, and the Holy of Holies. Here the nations are invited to come to the temple, and the merchants have crowded them out, so there's no room for the foreigners to come into the temple, for the converts to come into the temple. The Passover has become an event for the insiders. And Jesus is raging mad because of it. And Jesus is trying to make a point here to Israel that who needs the cleansing? The true Passover lamb walks into the temple and he turns over the tables. And Jesus' point to us is that the first people who need cleansing at church are always the religious. The churchgoers It's always the religious who need the cleansing first. There are always obstacles to the gospel. For the irreligious, it's our sin or our pursuit of pleasure. For the the nuns, N-O-N-E-S's, it's always the exclusivity of Christianity. It doesn't seem fair. But for the Christians, for the religious crowd, the obstacle to the gospel is almost always our culture or our traditions. You have to look like we look. You have to dress like we dress. You have to live in our part of town. You have to worship this way and that way. And Jesus is saying the gospel has got to go to, to religious first because how in the world are we going to open up the court of Gentiles for the converts if we ourselves don't understand the gospel and get it? Self-righteousness must be identified in any group in order for repentance to be genuine and to be real and for hospitality to be possible. If you've come to our, uh, our new members class, you know that we, we always tell the story of the prodigal son in, in Luke chapter 15. And that story starts out, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. And you think about the modern American church for a moment, friends. The tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to Jesus and it was the scribes and the Pharisees who they were grumbling you think about the modern american church and that is almost completely reversed it's the Pharisees and the scribes who are attracted to him and it's the tax collectors and the sinners and the outside who are grumbling why because maybe we've set up cultural traditions in the church that have become a major obstacle to us being able to understand the importance of Christ's life and his death for us could it be possible Might it even be possible for us? In Scripture, like, we expect Jesus to go to a wedding and to, like, clean it up and clear it of all wine and make it a worship service. And here we expect in the temple that Jesus would walk into the temple and He would clear it of all wine and get things serious. But no, Jesus goes to a wedding and He provides more wine He extends the party out and he goes to a church and he turns tables over and he makes a total mess of things because your Savior is always in the business of helping you recognize that he will be first and he will fight for it. And whatever cultural tradition or tendency that we have in our life, he will try to root it out. It happened in the ancient Near East. It happens today. Today. It happened in the Reformation. It needs to happen in our hearts. Do you make room for the outsiders? Barna came up with a, uh, a, they they created a spiritual survey that they've been working on for several years. They just released it last week. And they said, what is, what marks a spiritually vital household in America? What marks a spiritually vital household? And they said there were two components that marked a spiritually vital household. Number one was devotion. They talked about the gospel together. In season and out of season, on the road, they talked about the gospel as a family. And the second one was, you can have the first all you want, that you're not spiritually vital according to the study. The second one was, they constantly had people in their homes. Hospitality opening up your home to people who are different than you was a mark of the spiritually vital family. How about us? Who needs cleansing? Before we wag our finger at the people across the aisle or the people who are different than we are, you know, it was Anne Lamott who I think one time, it was Anne Lamott who did say that we can be sure that If all of God's enemies are our enemies too, then we can safely assume we've made him into our own image. In other words, if we vilify all the people that we believe God has vilified, then maybe it's the reformation in our own heart that needs to happen. There are, for example, um, um, there are six, in Houston, I'm not sure what it's in Tulsa, but in Houston there are 6,000 homeless people children. One in three within 48 hours get picked up into sex trafficking. After they leave their home, one in three get pulled into the sex trafficking industry. Think about about race relations at home in our churches. Think about Gosh, you can go, you know, it's in the news this week. Think about Mike Brown. Think about Ferguson. Think about the um, Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. You know, the list can go on and on and on, right? Passivity by the church and not addressing some of these systemic things is turning a blind eye to cultural idols that we may very well find are keeping us from understanding the gospel together. If we feel like all the people that are... um, Different than we are, are safe to be uh, uh, separated from. Maybe it's us who is the problem. Maybe we as a church ought to be able to be those who are always open and always willing to let other people into our homes. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it means fostering children. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it means having meaningful connections, having an awareness of our blind spots. We have to fight like crazy for these things, guys. They're not easy. They're blind spots because to them we are blind. What are they? Passover was a big deal. And when Jesus comes to town to turn over their tables, he's striking at the heart of their religion and saying, you've missed the point. And how do we get the cleansing we need? If he goes after us first, if he goes after the religious first, which he always does because nobody who is looking at the church is going to come to the church if we're full of self-righteousness and we're a bunch of snobs. But when we're humbled to the dust because of what Christ, the true Passover, has done in our life, it makes us say it's only by grace that we are who we are. Welcome. Share my things. Let's have a table set together. Are there conditions on this table? There are conditions on this table But please, Christian, do not extrapolate that to your friendships. Are there conditions on our friendships? No. And if you feel like you have more in common with people of your political persuasion than you do with people of your own faith, please, 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 please check your heart. And if you feel like there are conditions where people have to meet in order to become your friend, please check your self-righteousness. There are certainly conditions on the Lord's table. It's the Lord's table. But there should be no conditions on our friendship. And Christians ought to be the most networked people in the world because we don't put up barriers to our relationships. Are you able to do that? Or do you secretly harbor in your mind a hatred which is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says is what happens when you break the 6th commandment. It's not that if you murder somebody, it's if you hate them in your heart. Oh Trinity, let us not let us not continue to perpetuate systemic sins that are happening all over the world because we're blind to them. So how do we get this cleansing? How do we get it? Jesus comes to clean house. Jesus comes in, and he gets mad, and, and he makes a whip. And in the Greek, this whip is not like a leather whip, like you're all thinking of like Indiana Jones. This is not the whip he has. This is, this is, this is not that kind of whip. It's not a leather whip. It's a, it's a whip of, of rushes. It's a, rip, a whip of weeds, which means that the effect of Jesus with the whip was far greater than the cause. This whip that he made was the whip for the animals, to clear the animals out of the temple. Because why does Jesus get so mad? Jesus isn't mad because people had to exchange money. He gets that. It's just he I don't think he's mad because they're exchanging money. I think he's primarily mad because of the animals being sold in the temple, because it is preventing people from being able to worship. Because the way it worked is that it was so convenient to come to Passover. The the one festival of the year when you are to meditate on death, on the price of reconciliation with God. It was a time of prayer. And that is what makes Jesus so upset. That the money changers and those who were selling, uh, uh, selling the animals had made worship so convenient that it left them no time to meditate because what happened is you simply bought your animal. Instead of bringing it with you, you bought it there. Instead of bringing it from town or bringing it from outside the gates of the temple, you bought it inside the temple. You walked three steps, you handed it to a high priest, and you said, my job is done and I'm out of here. And we think about the way we face church today, or that we go to church, that we view church in the modern American world. There's a part of worship that is meant to be meditative, and that we have to create environments where people can slow down, which is some of the silly reasons why we play music before uh, worship. It's not because we're trying to fill the air. It's because sometimes some of you need to come in here and just pray, And when you're at worship, do you slow down enough to worship? Or do you think there's snow outside, or it'll cost me an hour, let's get in and get it done and get home? The Lord intends for worship to be more than that. He intends it to shape you, to mold you. Jesus didn't get upset because there were money changers in the temple. Jesus ran the animals out because the animals were, were preventing people from dwelling in the moment. From worshiping him. Jesus was upset because the temple had become an emporium. Is Trinity? Is the modern American church? We push against that. We want to dwell in his presence and we will let his presence shape us because he's here. And Jesus always thought about his death, always. He was always thinking about it. And he's so upset because nobody's thinking about death. They're just making a quick exchange and getting out of there. Jesus says, you don't know the price of death. You don't understand it. And Jesus is thinking about him as the true Passover lamb. He's thinking about himself as the one who is going to be sacrificed. He's the one who's going to bleed. He said, oh, worshipers, you're missing the point. You're missing it. And that's why he ran them out. Sociologists have taught us, friends, that it is not our it is not our faith that determines our behavior. It is often our social context. It is often our ability to have a what's called a high threshold against the culture. Wilt Chamberlain was one of the greatest basketball players to ever, ever play. We need an illustration to make the point, right? So I'll tell a story. Wilt Chamberlain was the greatest basketball player to ever play. Seven foot tall, was just an amazing athlete, right? 270 pounds. There's been nobody on the court like Wilt Chamberlain ever since then. One game in 1962, he scored 100 points in a game. But Wilt Chamberlain had one Achilles heel. And that was that he was a horrible free throw shooter. And they had figured out at the time that the best way to actually shoot free throws, and it's still true today, was actually to throw the free throw granny style. Did you know that? It's a more consistent way to shoot the ball, to throw it from between your legs. Like where do your arms naturally hang when you play, when you walk around? They hang below your waist. It's like ergonomically unnatural for you to shoot the ball like this. And so they showed that, that you can, and they tried to teach Wilt Chamberlain this trick because they, his coach said, if you can shoot 90% On your free throw shots, he shot like 40%. We will never lose. And so Wilt tried it. He tried to shoot it between his legs, and he got his percentages up to 60%, 65%. He was doing great. And then one day, suddenly, he shocked his team when he just stopped doing it that way. And when you read his, his biography later, you find out why he stopped. It wasn't because he wasn't making it. Rationally, that is the best way to shoot a basketball shot. He stopped doing it because he felt silly. And he's Wilt Chamberlain. But he felt silly shooting like that. Rick Barry, who's another NBA player at the time, shot all of his free throws like that. And he had, I think, one, you know, in one season, I think he missed nine free throws. Like LeBron James misses 100 free throws, right? Rick Barry missed nine in a season. Nine! And what sociologists have taught us is that there are people who have a high threshold and a low threshold. Where though you may rationally understand something, your threshold is so low that it takes very little influence from the public for you to change your behavior, even though rationally you know it doesn't make sense. NFL owners were another example of this, by the way. Like, it is better, did you know this? It is always better to trade your first-round picks for a second-round pick. Always better. Players are cheaper. They're not that much less of an athlete than the first-round guys are. It's always better to fill your roster with second-round picks. But no NFL owners will do it. They won't trade their first-round picks. They always keep one, even though it doesn't make economic sense, it doesn't make rational Statisticians have made this, true, made this known for years. And in the same way, you see that the American church is losing its threshold against the culture. We become in a a very low threshold culture where the church faces the cultural winds, and so easily we just say, okay. The United Methodist Church is a perfect example this week. Like they had a vote this week. And it was like 53 to 40. Somebody of you can check my math. I'm not exactly sure what it was. But 53% to 47% to uphold traditional marriage. I was so thankful. It was amazing. I was so glad. But do you know it took a third of the delegates to come over from Africa in order for the be, there to be a 6% difference? Because if left to the American church, They would have completely redefined marriage. It was our African brothers and sisters who came over to vote that actually swung the vote. What does it say about us as modern-day Americans as our threshold for what we know to be true to be coming down so quickly? Brothers and sisters, raise your threshold. Next uh, Next to Wilt Chamberlain, Rick Barry was a guy who threw, had the most free throws ever He shot this amazing percentage, and he looked silly every time he did it. But you know what? He didn't care. Because he heard people in the crowd say, quit making fun of that dude. He makes all of his shots. And it's going to take us in the church to quit holding our hand to the wind, to raise our threshold to say that, do you want a 1,000 Olympic medals? Do you want a Nobel Peace Prize? Do you want a Pulitzer? Listen. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You've been justified by faith. You've got a thousand Olympic medals. You've got the Pulitzer. You've got the Nobel Peace Prize. You've got your father's affection. What more Christian do you want? You've got it. You have it. So go live like it. Care about the things that we need to care about. Open your hands. Open your arms. Open your houses up to others. Be the church for the world. We are not only called to promote worship in corporate worship. Of course we are. But we're also to have wide doors to open wide the world. And that only happens if we've checked our own self-righteousness at the door. Are you willing to do that? Because Jesus will turn your tables upside down and He'll do it before He tells you why. And he won't tell you why because he wants you to trust him. If he told you why, it would be like if you were engaged and you were exorbitantly wealthy and there was a stock market correction and you lost half of your money and your, your, your fiancé comes to you and says, oh, well, now, oof, mm, I think the wedding's off. And you'd be so offended. What? You didn't marry me. You married my money. You're rejecting me now because I don't have any money? And In the same way, when we say, Jesus, I'll obey you if you tell me why, Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. You'd be offended, as a human, you'd be offended. You offend my deity when you refuse to obey me without a reason why. I tell you, trust me. And if you can be so mad at a mighty God who can change your circumstances so much that you don't understand why, well, then certainly he is a God who is mighty enough to have a reason beyond your understanding. Will you trust him? The Jews ask for a sign in verse 18. And Jesus says, Destroy the temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. The Sanhedrin used Jesus' words in Matthew 23 and in Mark 14 against him. They charged him with a capital offense. They said, he threatened to destroy the temple. No, he didn't. You're misusing Jesus' own words. People use Jesus to support all their personal vendettas, their politics, their economic views, their social views. Do you read his word? Do you study it? Do you know it? Are you aware of your blind spots? Jesus comes into the temple and he declares it a scene of judgment. O wicked and perverse generation, you ask for a sign, but they'll be given no sign to you except the sign of Jonah. And in three days, Christ will be present. Christ will show himself powerful. Christ will be the one who proves that he indeed did raise the temple because he himself is not just the true Passover, but he is the true temple. Jesus will fill your cup or he will turn your tables over. And he is the one who's holy and mighty and able to do it. Do you trust him? Where is Jesus cleansing you? Where are you able to say in the darkness of your heart, get this stuff out of here? Jesus came down harder on Sabbath breakers than he did adulterers. Jesus always goes to the religious first in order to clean house. In the Bible, Jesus always says, Come to me before, go therefore to the nations. Come to me. Come to me. You want to be radical? As C.S. Lewis says, aim at Jesus and you'll get service thrown in. But if you aim at service, you'll get neither. Come to Christ. See him as the true Passover lamb. See his death. See him as your only way, your only substitutionary atonement and let that fuel you to then go out and be his hands and feet to the world. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. When we do that, he opens us up. He uses us. To be beautiful pictures of humility broken by our own sin, of hospitality, seeing that there are no conditions upon the friendships with which we have. And he draws us into worship, where seeing his holiness, we come to a censored table where repentance is the only requirement to come. Will you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are the true Passover lamb. Thank you that sometimes you fill our tables and sometimes you turn them over. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the true temple. Thank you that you indeed did come and you rose again on the third day. And Lord, I pray that we, like Israel in Ezra 3, will cry out when we see the temple, the church today. And we will say, oh, when will the ultimate temple be here? When will you come to make everything new? When will you be here? And maybe we weep and cry. And then maybe we rejoice because we know that you have come, that you've set your affection upon us, and you've called us to be so much more for your glory and your power's sake. Lord, let it start with us. Let it start even today. Thank you, Father, that you love us enough to challenge us and to cleanse us and to make us new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.